0: Thank you, kids. That was awesome. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Leah. And I have the hardest part because how do I follow that? Before the kids leave, before the kids leave, let me give you a quick update for all the church, if I could. And I just want to go back and uh, remind you: back on April 28th, we had a town hall meeting at the bridge. And that's where uh, we identified uh, some needs and concerns we have about facilities and our desire to have permanent facilities in the future. And we talk about especially uh, the need for bridge kids. And um, we um, focused our vision for this possibility back in 2014. And we have a vision point that says we dream of a church with facilities that will one day be a home to an expanding ministry for all ages. And one of the things that we're saying as leaders is now is the time for us to focus on that. And to do that, we recognize we have a significant need to raise some financial resources to help us. We want to raise a down payment, call it seed money, so that we can pursue permanent facilities in the future. And we're going to call this Grow Forward. And uh, you're going to be seeing this in the future, and this is going to be our focus this fall. It'll be focused on with growth groups. Uh, I'll be doing a message series that relates to Grow Forward. And so we want you to know this is, in, this is coming. We, we believe it's really important, and we want to invite you all to join with us as we take this journey together. Uh, we need everybody who calls the bridge there home, to be involved, to pray with us, uh, to get involved, to serve with us as uh, the needs arise. So uh, we want you to be aware of that. This is what's coming. Now we're going to start letting you know, know more as we come into August, and that will be our focus for the fall. So we want you to grow forward with us. Bridge kids, thank you. You're dismissed. Today we're in Luke chapter 23. We're going to be focusing on verses uh, 26 to 56. I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles, your smartphone, whatever you use to follow the Scripture. An unusual thing happened on July fourteenth, two 2014 in Chicago. David C. Nicosia, 55-year-old white man, business owner of... um, Uh, uh, informational technology business, he got into an argument with a 79-year-old African-American woman because she was smoking. Apparently, the argument became quite heated because he got up close in her face and he called her Rosa Parks and he told her to move. He then became so irate that he slapped her with an open left hand right on the face. He didn't know this. The woman happened to be Judge Arnett Hubbard, the first female president of the National Bar Association of Cook County. She had become a community icon for her service, including being an election observer in Haiti and South Africa, she also had been uh, long a voice for women's issues and civil rights. News media grabbed this and abounded with many stories, and the headlines like, "You don't slap an icon." But that's exactly what they did to Jesus, and they didn't know it. They slapped him. They hit him in the head and they spit on him. It's Friday morning. Close to 9 a.m., Jesus had been up all night, as you remember. He is exhausted. It was Thursday, the night before, he had his last meal, the last supper, with his disciples. That was when he washed their feet. And uh, he predicted that he would be betrayed by Judas, and he was. He predicted that he would be denied by three to three times, and he was. He spent a considerable amount of time that evening uh, instructing them, giving them final words. When he was in, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying with the disciples, and he was arrested. And that was kind of just the beginning of a very long night. He appeared before Annas. And then he appeared before Caiaphas, the high priest. And they kept him up all night. And at daybreak, he appeared before the Sanhedrin. And they pronounced him guilty for blasphemy. And then he was presented to the civil authorities. He, they were, he was first presented to Pilate. Pilate said, not guilty. They passed him on to Herod. Herod made fun of him, but couldn't find anything wrong. And back to Pilate. And Pilate said, not guilty. But because it was politically expedient at that time with the religious leaders and the people who were calling for his crucifixion, Pilate let them have him to be crucified. And that's where we come to today in uh, Luke chapter 23. I want to read the very first uh, parts of the text here. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. And here's what it says. And they led him astray. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. It's one of the ways to become a follower of Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And so let's have a look at this, the crucifixion of Jesus, and we begin... Uh, on the way to the cross, verses 26 through 31, and we meet the cross bearer, and his name is Simon. So soldiers led him away. They see Simon from Cyrene. I think we have a map. Always need a map, so we're a little behind on the maps. So look at Cyrene. That's North Africa. Think of the New Testament era is based around the Mediterranean Sea. And over to the right is that small little country we call Israel, the promised land. And then you can see Jesus, you can see Nazareth, that's, and there's a little dot to the right, that's the Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus came from. And then we go down to Jerusalem in the south, it's a small country. Simon, an African Jew, comes all of the way from Cyrene because he wants to worship in Jerusalem at the Passover. Mark notices in Mark 15, 21, he says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him in to carry the cross. So you know, it wasn't like his choice. They seized him. Uh, this, they, they enlisted him. You've got to do this. And what we learn from Mark here is, apparently, Simon was known in the early church. And if you didn't know who Simon was, I bet you knew his sons, and they were Alexander and Rufus. And uh, a lot of scholars think they were well-known to the church in Rome, that they perhaps were followers of Christ. Perhaps Simon becomes a follower of Christ after this event. And I admit, we don't know those things as facts. Uh, we see the followers, verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. These aren't disciples, by the way. These are people in the city. These are hometown people, and probably includes some of the people that have come in for the Passover from all over the Mediterranean. Um, Jesus gives a forewarning. It sounds pretty harsh. Uh, He addresses his remarks to the local women, the daughters of Jerusalem. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. I do not need your sympathy. Weep for yourselves and your children. He's giving them a forewarning of things to come. Verse 29, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women. That doesn't sound right. In this era, having children was considered uh, a super blessing. Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us. Quote from Hosea 10, 8, prophecy. And to the hills, cover us. And one of the things that Jesus is doing is he is forewarning the people of Jerusalem as he has been, that there is a dark time coming and it's going to be a time of judgment on this nation, on this people, and especially on Jerusalem. And we have talked about this clear back in Luke chapter 20. And Jesus mentions it. Josephus the historian writes about this. It happened in 70 AD. So Jesus will be gone. A number of those people will still be alive. Uh, because of the Jewish uprising, the Romans came in under the Roman uh, general, uh, Tiberius, and um, he uh, surrounded the city for five months. And according to Josephus, experts think he was a little bit high, but there were 97,000 prisoners taken and 1.1 million people executed in 70 A.D. in Jerusalem. Men, women, children, the elderly. There was no, uh, no preference. But not only that, there's a time coming that Revelation 6 speaks of when they will say to, to, the, um, to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is speaking prophetically to these women and warning them of what's to come. And it's a warning to be ready, to pay attention, to listen to what God is doing, and to see what God is do- doing, and ultimately to become a Christ follower. And he says in verse 31, for if people, this is a proverbial saying, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? If they do this while Jesus, who is innocent, if they execute him, what will they do with the guilty? What will God do with the guilty? And he's speaking of the judgment to come. Then we move to the cross, verses 32 through 34. And one of the things that we notice is that Luke just really gives a capsule. Um, he doesn't give us, we, we can get more if we go to all four Gospels. And Luke keeps it pretty concise. and He doesn't give every detail or every word spoken. And at the cross, he's crucified with two others, two other men, both criminals, who were also led out with him to be executed. Um, and then we see the crucifixion. When they came to the place called the skull. Okay, we should have a picture. Okay. We don't know where Jesus was crucified. This is one of the possibilities. It's just right outside of Jerusalem. I've I've seen this in person. And there is a hill on top, and it is believed that the crucifixion could have taken place on top of this hill. This is Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word for the skull or the place of the skull. If you have a King James Version, it's Calvary. And uh, this was uh, identified by Gordon. And Roman Catholic Church thinks the uh, crucifixion was held at the location where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. We don't know for sure. Um, When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on the left. Not much detail. Verse 34 the forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus prays for his enemies at the cross. I believe he gave those instructions to us as well, didn't he? To pray for our enemies. For the people who hated him. For the people who had hurt him. For the people who had beat him. For the people who had made fun of him. He prays for their forgiveness. His enemies don't understand the ramifications of who he is and what they are doing. And he prays for their forgiveness. So I just would ask us, Who should we be praying for? Who are the people that we don't like that we should be praying for? Who are the people who have offended us with their words that we should be praying for? Who are the people that have hurt us deeply that we should be praying for? And Jesus models this and he gave us these instructions to pray for our enemies We see the indifference at the cross, at the foot of the cross in verse 34. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The guards on duty. Jesus is dying on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. And the guards aren't paying any attention to him. They're thinking, what's in it for me? Because the guards, uh, part of the deal was you get to pick from, his, from the criminals clothing and you know they didn't have a lot of clothing stores or cheap racks clothes were all handmade so clothing could be pretty valuable and they weren't afraid to wash it jesus had a particular valuable garment he had a seamless garment and so this would have been a prized uh possession for someone but this was also a fulfillment of psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18 Where it says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. If you don't know Psalm 22, you should read it. There are many things fulfilled at the crucifixion in the life of Jesus. And it may well have been that Jesus was quoting this while he was on the cross. And thinking about this. And it's this passage that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was at the cross, he was humiliated, verses 35 through 38. We see the the people in 35, the people stood watching. And the rulers, this is the religious rulers, this is the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, the high priests, the, the Pharisees, the elders, they even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And so they're just making fun of Jesus. Uh, they mocked him. They challenged him about salvation. He was the one who's, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Can't even save himself. They're making fun of him. We see the soldiers, 36 and 37. They also came up and mocked him. Religious leaders mock him. Now the soldiers mock him. They offered him wine vinegar. Jesus would have been extremely thirsty, I don't imagine they gave him much water during the night. He's had probably a significant blood loss by this time. And he's extremely thirsty. And so they offer him something. It's wine vinegar. And uh, that did not quench anybody's thirst. And they did this to deceive him, to make fun of him. And they said to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They question his ability to save. They mock him. In verse 39, the public notice, there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. This is what Pilate ordered, and we know um, from one of the other Gospels, um, John chapter 19 verses 21, uh, 21 through 22, that the religious leaders didn't like this. And they wanted Pilate to say, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate wouldn't have anything to do with it. And it, it really becomes kind of humorous. He, cl- he was the king of the Jews. They put the note, he was cu- crucified for being the king of the Jews. And it's sort of like a put-down of Pilate to religious leaders. There's your king. This is what you get. And it's kind of embarrassing, in a way, for the religious leaders. And it's pretty amazing when you think of, here is the king of the Jews, and that's exactly who Jesus was and is. And he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And yes, one day he will reign on his throne eternally. We also reminded that Jesus was crucified with criminals, verses 39 through 43. Uh, First, we see the insults. One of the criminals who hung hurled insults at him Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's mocked by the religious leaders, he's mocked by the soldiers. Now he's mocked by a criminal hanging next to him on the cross. And which reminds us of Isaiah 53, 12. The prophet 800 years before the birth of Christ writes, therefore I will give him a portion. He's speaking of the promised one, the Messiah. A portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And that's the crucifixion. And was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted with criminals. He's crucified side by side with criminals. For he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for his enemies. And the interesting thing now with the criminals... He is defended by one, verses 40 and 41. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. So this criminal hanging on the cross, dying for his own sins, defends Jesus. And he says, we are punished justly. He openly confessed, I deserve this. I am guilty. And it may well have been murder. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong, not guilty. A criminal on the cross announces Jesus has done nothing wrong. He recognizes the very same thing that Pilate saw not guilty. Verse 42, the request. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we don't know all that said, are these the only words said in this conversation? Probably not, but we don't know. It's very brief. Jesus knows his heart is sincere. We find this on many occasions in the Uh, Gospels where Jesus knows what's in man's hearts. We don't know how much information this criminal had about Jesus. Had he heard Jesus teach? Had he stood in the crowd somewhere along the way? Had he ever seen a miracle of Jesus? Jesus has been public for quite some time. Somehow he recognizes and believes that Jesus... Who is being crucified as king of the Jews is coming into his own kingdom. And then we have a promise in verse 43 Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. We read through that really quick. It is absolutely amazing. Think about this guy. He's guilty. Everybody knows he's guilty, crucified on a cross. He admits he's guilty on the cross, and he asks Jesus to remember him, and Jesus does. And he gives him a promise, you will be with me in paradise, meaning heaven, today. There is life after death, and you're going to be with Jesus. And he gives him that promise. Is that fair? We call it grace. This guy doesn't have time to get baptized because baptism has nothing to do with how to be saved. This guy doesn't have time to join a church and and to be discipled. This guy doesn't have time to do any good works. All he can do is reach out to Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus gives him grace, for it is by grace are you saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this man receives a gift while he's being crucified. We see the death of Jesus, 44 through 49. The time was about noon and darkness came over the whole land. This is a supernatural darkness from noon until three in the afternoon. And the sun stopped shining. Then there's an amazing symbol in verse 45 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So the temple is the place of worship in Jerusalem and where they did animal sacrifices and where the priest went in for prayers. And then there, once a year, the high priest went into the most holy place before God to offer a sacrifice. Once a year for the covering of the sins of the nation for one year only. And this curtain is torn in two. And we learn uh, from Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 51. At the moment, the curtain uh, was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a 30-foot tall curtain, and it's torn instantly at the death of Christ. And it symbolizes something new. Access to God is new. Access to God is through Jesus, and there is no other way. Access to God is not through the Old Testament, the Old Covenant system. Access to God is now through the New Covenant that God is making with man. And there is nothing in between It's just Jesus that we go through. Last words, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life. They did not take his life. He gave it. He was in control. He came to do the Father's will. And this was the Father's will. And he is in total submission to the Father. John also notes this in John 19.30. He says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. All of the work that Jesus came to do it is finished. All of the work of our salvation, it is finished. It is done. It was done then. And there's not a thing you and I can do to add to it. And we need to be really clear about that. We need to be really clear about it when we communicate this to other people. It is by grace we are saved through faith. The work of salvation is done. Jesus Christ paid it all. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the responses, 47 through 49. The responses to his death. First, we see the centurion. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. Seeing what had happened, he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. We don't know anything about this person. We can't presume he's a follower of Christ. He must have had some interest in the God of the Jewish people. But this centurion in charge of the crucifixion, who was highly experienced at doing his job, viewed Jesus as not guilty. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. There must have been some remorse among the audience. Maybe some of those were people who yelled out, Crucify, crucify. But they have left. Verse 49 But all those who knew him, his followers, Christ's followers, his disciples, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, from the early years, from the beginning, They have served him and served the disciples. And here they are at the cross. They stood at a distance watching these things, waiting for their turn to serve Jesus. And then comes the burial in verses 50 through 56. And we see God appoints an ambassador, 50 through 52, an ambassador for Jesus at his death, and his name is Joseph Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good man and an upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph was a highly influential man. He had a prestigious position. He is a member of the ruling council, which includes 70 of the top leaders in all of the land of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the ruling council. And the Bible says he was good and he was upright. He took God very seriously. He took the scriptures very seriously. He did not consult, did not consent to the crucifixion. He did not consent to the guilty charges falsely against Jesus. He was looking forward to God's kingdom. He knew scripture. He knew the Old Testament and he's got his eyes out for a fulfillment of some kind. And he steps in now. He has been watching this and observing this and he has his private thoughts but this is bold this is risky this is dangerous he could lose everything potentially even his life over this going to Pilate, he asked for jesus's body it could cost him everything to go public and and jesus is dead what benefit is there going to be for this man John 19, verses 38 through 40, John tells us a little bit more information. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked for Pilate's body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Joseph is a secret disciple, apparently not gone public. Are, are you a secret disciple? You know, you believe in your heart, but you don't like to talk about it. You don't tell people about it. You just keep it to yourself. Joseph was a secret disciple. But secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. That's a pretty normal human reasoning. Fear. And it was real. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Next slide. He was accompanied by, guess what, another secret disciple, Nicodemus, also a member of the ruling council, also a Pharisee, the one who came to see Jesus in John chapter 3 at night and said, we know you are a man from God because of the signs you are doing. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds. Next slide taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. So they have to hurry, and we'll see why. Um, 53 through 54, it, this is Luke's version of kind of what I just read. They, they wrapped his body in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, which no one had yet been laid. It was Joseph of Arimathea's private tomb, hand-cut in the rock, very expensive, a family tomb, probably large enough to hold many bodies over the years. Verse 54 is the key. It was preparation day, meaning Friday, the day they prepare for Sabbath. And the Sabbath was about to begin. So he dies about 3 o'clock, and as soon as sundown happens everything has to stop. Everything has to be done before sundown. And so they have to do this hastily. They don't embalm bodies. They wash them and then wrap them and then use perfume and spices. And that's all. And and the body is buried within 24 hours. And then we meet the women, verses 55 through 56, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. And so the women knew exactly where Jesus' body was, by the way. They didn't get lost, and they weren't uh, distressed and hysterical, and they knew what they were doing. Then then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So these were the women at the cross, who were his disciples. They have been waiting to serve. They are serving Jesus in death. They get things ready. There has been a hurry-up preparation for burial. It is not finished. The burial is not finished. Jesus is laid in the tomb by sundown. The women get everything in order, and their plan is to rest on the Sabbath according to the law and then Sunday morning early they're going to get there and they're going to finish their work in serving Jesus. But we know what happened because when they went on Sunday, the tomb was empty. Now, we've discovered a whole lot of material. And when you look of all the events leading up to Jesus' death, there are long passages leading up to the crucifixion. It's a long passage, and we haven't gotten to the resurrection. Actually, we did the resurrection on Easter, if you remember. And there's a lot of ways we can talk about this and apply it. I just want to apply this in one way, from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. So we just saw all that Jesus did for us. Here's a very practical application from the Apostle Paul. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christ followers. He's talking to the church. Therefore, I urge you, church, in view of God's mercy and all that God has done for you, that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that he would pay for your sins, that he does not give you what you deserve, but he offers total forgiveness in heaven. That being said, in view of God's mercy, here's what you can do. This Is the exchanged life. We talked about this last week a little bit. The exchanged life to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In view of all that God has done for us, it's your choice. What will you do with your life? How will you follow Christ? Will you follow Christ when you feel like it? Will you follow Christ when it's convenient? Will you follow Christ because you're all in? You're totally yielded, totally surrendered. He is Lord. I'm His servant. I don't have to decide whether I'm going to obey. I just need to know what He wants me to do. That's what it means to offer your body, offer all that you are, offer. Everything you have that's connected to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his model. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his total obedience. Thank you so much for his love. And he gave everything for us. And now we can give our own lives back, meager as they may be. We can just be humble and willing to serve you. Humble and willing to have Jesus be Lord of our lives. Humble and desiring to be filled with your Holy Spirit and led day by day. And acknowledging that we seek forgiveness and that we can get right back up. And we can continue to follow Jesus one day at a time. Help us to be a people who take that seriously. Help us to be a people that follow you. Help us to be a people that are pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.